Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow from Tarleton State University, and I want to welcome you today to the show. A lot happening uh, over the week as we have seen so many things happening around the country with protests and with gatherings and just concerns that are being expressed over the actions of, of all different people across all different spheres related to uh, the incident uh, uh, George Floyd, the one who was asphyxiated in uh, Minneapolis, and and then the, the the repercussions and consequences of that in terms of people engaging uh, with this issue, and so we wanted to give attention to this on this week's show, especially with our focus in bringing more substantive analysis and looking at some of these critical issues, and really trying to help our listeners to get a, a broader context to understand. Uh, some of these issues. And so uh, for the show today, I'm, I'm very pleased to welcome a, a colleague and a, a associate in the uh, the college, Dr. Alex Del Carmen, who is our associate dean of the College of Liberal and Fine Arts. Uh, but more significantly, I think, in terms of his uh, academic work, and not only that, his public service, uh, he has been involved in the study of criminology uh, for for many many years, uh, he's authority on the topic of race and crime, with a particular emphasis on racial profiling in law enforcement. And in that, he has written numerous articles in internationally recognized journals, as well as published several books and does presentations around the world. But a part of that as well is his direct engagement with law enforcement, and he has trained thousands of police officers including all of the Texas police chiefs in since 2001. And so his engagement with law enforcement at that level and looking at some of the challenges of this is just uh, makes him one of the leading experts uh, in the nation, if not the world, in kind of understanding some of these dynamics. So it's a, a privilege for us. He, he does interviews on uh, CNN, uh, Fox News, Telemundo, Univision and NBC, and so uh, uh, I'm not sure if we have raised that a level now that you're on KTRL 90.5 FM from Tarleton State in Stephenville, Texas, but uh, we're keeping good company there in that uh, we're, we have you on today. So thank you, Alex, for joining us. Thank you for having me. So uh, really for me, and we've discussed some of this uh, leading up to the show and looking at uh, all of these uh, what's going on, the protests, the interactions with law enforcement. And we see uh, the, the, so much attention is given to the, 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 the violence, uh, the, the, some of the protests that lead to really negative engagements with law enforcement or, 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 or conflict. And, and of course we see a lot of, of these protests and things that are going on. And it seems like there's been some, some calming uh, here in, in the last few days, but we see a lot of, uh, of, of interaction here on multiple levels. And in terms of your experience in reflecting on this and seeing uh, what's happening, uh, I don't know if it, how you can explain some of this. Is, it, is there an urban rural aspect of it? Is it we have certain centers of, of population and, and maybe history of law enforcement that has that it, when these issues do come up, like we've seen in Ferguson, we've seen it in Baltimore, now we see it in Minneapolis, where uh, it's just the, the the conditions are there to uh, for something like this to happen, and and not just the actions of an individual. I mean, I know we're gonna we see that, and 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 that that's going to happen. It's the it's the after effect, and so I didn't know in your analysis and reflection on that, how do you look at the nation as a whole and kind of uh, interpret or understand these kinds of things that, that flare up from time to time? Yeah, so that's a great question, right? So if you look at the, at the population and the number of police officers and police agencies across the United States, the FBI estimates that there are 1 million police officers in the streets of the United States today. And according to the FBI, there are close to 30,000 police agencies across the U.S. Most of them are in very rural, uh, distant communities, right? So even in the state of Texas, you know, 80% of agencies are not, you know, the Fort Worths or the Dallases uh, of the state. And so by virtue of that, what you tend to see is that agencies such as, you know, the size of Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, they have so many police officers and so many interactions with the public on a given day 
that there is a greater likelihood, just by virtue of frequency, population density, and whatnot, that some of these incidents may actually emerge, right? Um, so, so in this particular case, you have a case in Minneapolis, and you've got you know thousands upon thousands of people, uh, large communities where minorities reside, uh, that are you know many of them are are poverty uh, stricken, and so so it's not surprising from a sort of sociological perspective that you would find that the eruption of anger, frustration, and to some degree violence that we have seen in the past week is taking place for the most part in these urban settings that are very diversified, that have greater uh, concentrations of mass populations, and where there are thousands upon thousands of police officers. And so, you know, folks folks that live in the rural uh, areas of Texas and the rest of the United States are likely not going to see uh, the, the sort of violence uh, that we are seeing in, in, in cities like Boston, Miami, Chicago, you know, L.A., and, uh, and Dallas. Well, uh, I think we saw that here in, in Stephenville this week when there was a gathering in the local park, and I think about four or 500 people attended, and it became much more of a community event uh, with people just uh, the, there to affirm their uh, support to, yes, there was an element of protest to it, but it also was uh, much more of a, 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 of a social uh, type event as well as, as affirming some of the, the different uh, stances on, on critical issues right now. So we, we, we see that and, and we, we also see the challenges of uh, community leaders in addressing this and, and knowing that certainly no one that's any in any uh, a, a position leading a, a city or even a police force uh, wants to see this, this uh, turn into destruction of property and, 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 and violence and all of that. But on the other side of it, in some c- cities like we've seen in, in Minneapolis now, they're having to navigate uh, very challenging issues of the what's going on within the police force, as well as uh, putting forth the, the service of public safety in the midst of all of this. And, and so you have people coming together. It's very confrontational in watching it in the streets where you've got people who are supportive of law enforcement, but then you've got people who are not because of the way that they're uh, uh, looking at this entire uh, issue. Um, you, you've worked with police chiefs, you've worked with city officials for a number of years on, on, on a wide range of things. What what are some of the things that these leaders are struggling with or trying to manage at this point and in, in trying to get through this, this current crisis? Yeah. So, so when you look at, um, you know, the instances that, or the events that took place before the death of, of George Floyd, right? So if you look at the Eric Gardner incident in New York city, you look at other incidents throughout the United States that we've, that we've seen and in Texas, you know, Sandra Bland, a number of years ago, there's always been sort of a population of chiefs of police and police professionals that have looked at those incidents and have said, well, but you know, there's always two sides to the story and you've got to look at, you know, what the other side thinks and what the other side is doing. And so there was always that question mark, but, but in this particular case, it is different from anything that we have ever seen in the history of policing, in modern day history of policing, right? And I say that with the caveat that to answer your question, many of these chiefs of police are just really scratching their heads. And as I wrote in my book, in fact, as I actually called the publisher to ask them to send it back so that I could add about the George Floyd death, because I think mm-hmm. it's an important piece of history. And I wrote in there that that this makes the unbelievable believable, right? And so, so many of the chiefs of police that never thought this was possible in modern day policing are now all of a sudden after watching the video for nine minutes and seeing this man struggle for his life, call on his mother, uh, saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe several times. And and the officer's knee still placed on this man's neck. Uh, they really are shaking their heads and they're saying, this is, this is just absolutely unbelievable, right? And so I, I think the best way to answer that is, they're struggling themselves, right, with the acceptance that this actually happened in modern day policing, in spite of the significant efforts that many of us have tried to make in the past two or three decades, right, to, to bring the community to policing and vice versa. So, so I think that, you know, and I've, and I've heard very, very, very forceful uh, and, and very vocal statements from chiefs. I mean, to the extent that my good friend Art Acevedo from 
the chief of police from Houston, who publicly said three days ago that he had asked the family for to give him the honor, uh, using his words, not mine, of providing a police escort uh, in George Floyd's, uh, you know, funeral next week mm-hmm. in Houston. And so, so like you really see that they're, they're, especially Texas chiefs, I mean, they're disgusted by it. And, and they are, I mean, a lot of them are embracing for impact as to what the, uh, you know, the future requirements are going to be relevant to training, de-escalation tactics and various other things. Is this in a way, uh, it, it's showing them something that's still out there or it's just, it's, it's kind of reared its ugly head in a different way or whatever, or is this, I mean, one, we, I think the majority of people like to look upon our law enforcement and our police officers as public servants who have dedicated themselves to a, a vocation that is, is challenging far above uh, many others uh, and that they're putting their lives on the line and at risk on a, on a moment by moment basis in order to, to serve their communities. And, and so that, 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 but, but this shows that there are, that that it's either, you know, people, certain people that are getting into law enforcement or it's, there, there are issues of training. I mean, where, where do you see this uh, uh, in, in, in those terms so that in, in trying to help people kind of understand that one, this is certainly not the norm. I, I mean, when you're talking about the, the, the number of law enforcement people across the country, but, but there is something happening here that goes back to the preparation of those who are preparing those to be those kinds of public servants. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I've always said, and I, you know, I've, I've trained, Eric, uh, you know, police officers for 22 years now. And, and if you go back and you ask the state, as I did frequently, uh, recently rather for the number I've trained, I think something close to 15,000 police officers and every chief of police, like you said. So I can tell you, I've seen the good, the bad and the ugly. And, and I often say to people, 99.9% of police officers are decent, honest, hardworking people that get up every morning to sacrifice a lot of themselves and sometimes their own life in order to protect others. I mean, I've lost two police officers in the line of duty that have been former students of mine. And, uh, and you know, it's a very difficult thing. If you've never lost a friend or a colleague in law enforcement, it's very, very hard. Uh, there's not a day that passes that I don't say a prayer for them and for those that are alive protecting our lives. But unfortunately, I think in the past, you know, 20 years or so, we have been slowly relaxing many of those entry requirements that we had in place, right? And so now, for instance, you know, especially after the Ferguson incident, where many people just turned against against police, uh, social media did a great job of sort of, you know, projecting that police officers were all racist and they were all evil people. And, and that had an effect, right, on the profession in the sense that now, there are less applicants. I mean, we saw that in our students that, you know, came to the university that were seeking a law enforcement career. Many of them said, you know what, I'm going to go join the feds instead of joining local law enforcement because I don't want to be faced with those realities. And so, so I think law enforcement in an effort to, to counter that and, and really panicking about seeing all these baby boomers retiring and, and, and many folks that have given 30 years to law enforcement retire, they, they basically started relaxing those standards and, and, you know, I always say, look, at the end of the day, I've taught at police academies. I taught at the Arlington Police Academy for many years. I led the reform in, the, in New Orleans and the police academy there. And I can tell you, police academies, they, they only teach you so much. But if you bring somebody that has uh, a heart that is not in the right place and someone that, that has biases that are not correctable, uh, you're going to have those issues pop up. And sadly, that's what happened in this case. So I always say that the, anytime you see an incident like the one we saw last week in Minneapolis, it is, it is really the, the, the culprit behind this is that this person should have never been a police officer in the first place. You, you've worked with uh, city leaders. Uh, you've worked with state and federal uh, uh, officials as well. You've also been involved in, um, uh, especially not a, just as a scholar, but engaged with uh, reform efforts and looking at how uh, police departments uh, in- engage with these kinds of issues. Um, how how is that? How does that process work? I think I think a lot a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with both the, the efforts that happen on the local and, and the federal level uh, to, uh, to to look at what 
kind of structural or, or institutional or, or oversight changes need to happen. Uh, and I know some of it, like you said, it goes back to the selection of people. It goes back to the training. Uh, but, but also we've seen, like in Ferguson, where the federal government steps in uh, to address some of the, the local issues, that, that oversight is kind of critical in trying to re, you know, hit the reset button and, and move forward. Uh, explain kind of how that process works and what might happen, say, in Minneapolis or has happened in other cities where uh, there's the need for outside authority to come in and say, okay, we, we've got to we've got to address some critical issues. Yeah, so, so this dates back to President Clinton. You know, when President Clinton uh, was in, 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 in the presidency, I believe it was his second term, he decided that he was going to put uh, 100,000 police officers in the streets of the United States and open up a lot of grant uh, sources for local agencies to apply for it. But in, the, in this presidential sort of mandate, he also inserted a, a, a section which actually is USC 14141, which is the federal code that allows for the federal government to intervene uh, in local government policing in the event that it is shown that that police department has a, a, a suspicious of what we call uh, patterns and practices in my field. And so, so, so essentially what that means in English is that if you've got an agency that, that has systematic problems, right? For instance, you know, you, you have multiple uh, officers involved in shootings that are sort of questionable. You have, you know, police corruption cases. And, and, and so, so the Justice Department Civil Rights Division, which is, which is what, you know, Eric Holder, uh, when he was Attorney General, he, he called it the gem of the Department of Justice, right? These are very bright, very skillful lawyers that a lot of them are very much the you know idealist in that they feel like their their whole mission in life is to is to give the constitution back to the people right so so this very specialized unit they will they will send their lawyers literally deploy their lawyers to the scene as they did in Ferguson and then what they'll do is they'll begin an investigation right and so they'll approach the police department they'll sit down with the police department and say we're here to investigate you you have the option of either opening up you know your books or we'll see you in court, right? And a lot of police departments close up, which is sort of the nature, you know, of law enforcement. And then, and then what the Justice Department will do is they'll, they'll start digging, they'll, they'll do, you know, you can find, by the way, your, your listeners can actually go to the United States Department of Justice website, uh, usdoj.gov, and you will see all the investigations are there. PDF, a very, very heavy, uh, hefty files that they can go through and read them. But they're fascinating because they go into search practices, uh, policing tactics, training. So, so they sort of take away and they operationalize the entire police department into segments. And then they, they sit down with the police and the city and they say, look, we think we have a systematic problem here of patterns and practices. You have the choice of either settling this with us or we'll see you in court. And then if the, if the agency says, you know what, I'll see you in court. And by the way, Ferguson did that initially, then they go to court, right? So, so good luck going against the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, you know, um, you know, in, in federal court. And, and so they do that initially. And sometimes in the steps of the courtroom, they'll quote unquote settle. And what that means is that the city will not give any kind of, you know, large volume of money or any money at all to the government. That's not what the government is seeking, right? What the government seeks is police reform. And so what will happen at that point is they'll enter into an agreement. Typically, the agreement uh, addresses every point of the investigation, and then it will be given to a federal judge, and that federal judge will decide which team or which individuals are going to serve on behalf of the federal judge as the eyes and ears in establishing police reform. And so, so by the way, I, I've served in that role, you know, in the city of New Orleans. Uh, I was chosen to be one of the, of the seven members of the team. And, and it's kind of an interesting thing for an academic, right? Because, you, I mean, you show up, you know, from, you know, from the academic world where, you know, you're just one of many. And then, and then yeah, they give you a badge. They give you an ID. The, the, uh, the judge gave us her cell number. And they basically, you know, you would walk in a place and immediately upon showing up, everyone was kind of tense because, because you're, you work directly for the judge. I mean, you're pretty much deputized to be the eyes and ears of the federal court. And so one of the things that the judge said was, if anything happens to any of, of these individuals, you know, it's, it's almost as if you were going up against a federal agent, you know, anywhere else. So we have federal jurisdiction, 
you know, if I if I tell a police chief I want to see I, I want to see that drawer, I want to want to see what's inside, they have to open it, right? So if now we get the U.S. Marshals involved, and so so we there's a lot of power that goes in there, a lot of authority, and also a lot of responsibility because our job was then to to help them help themselves, right? The, the idea is is to to say, you know what, your training is really mediocre. So you've, you've got to look at your lesson plans, kind of like what we would do in academia, you know, look at your lesson plans, get good instructors, measure, you know, and it's very quantitative heavy. So you go in there and you measure their progress. And and typically, and I'll finish by saying this, typically at the end, uh, you know, what gets you out of it is when you are 95% in compliance for two whole years. And so, so like, for instance, just to give you an idea, you know, in Seattle, uh, just about five weeks ago, they're finally getting out of their consent decree, which has lasted years. And so, so the judge over there finally was given the okay by the Justice Department, by the federal monitors, and the city, of course, agreed that they have received, uh, achieved over 95% compliance. Very good. Well, it's it's an interesting process, and it's uh, I've uh, through the work that you've done and the conferences that you you've held, I've learned even more about this in terms of uh, the impact on uh, policies at the local level in terms of policing. I, I think my a question here is: uh, this happened, as you said, during the Clinton administration, or started started in that direction. Do we see anything and, and has there any, we have Baltimore, Ferguson, you mentioned New York as well. We've seen these kinds of incidents coming out of this. Do you, do you see anything at, at the, at the, at the national, at the federal level uh, in terms of policy direction uh, in the current process and the way it works or, uh, or how, how does situations when they come up like this kind of impact that going forward? Yeah, so, so obviously the Justice Department in, in the Civil Rights Division is made up of career lawyers that are not political, right? These are people that work full time, you know, for, you know, 20, 30 years and then they retire. But, but, but there's a political component to it, which is the Attorney General, obviously, of the United States is chosen by the president and whatnot. What we saw in the last consent decree under, under the previous President Obama took place in Baltimore, right? But, but there was a, it was interesting because it, it actually, they came into the consent decree right at the time that President Trump assumed office. Uh, but to, President Trump has, has been very vocal about the fact that he's not a supporter of these consent decrees. And uh, when Sessions was the attorney general, the same day that he left office, that he was fired by the president, he left a very scathing memo that, he, that essentially says these consent decrees don't work. I, I don't like him and all that. It's just a memo, but it does have some political significance. So, so what happened in Illinois, it's kind of interesting because the Chicago Police Department was about to go into a consent decree, but the Justice Department, and listen carefully here, the Justice Department opposed it, right? So, so, so it's like the first time in recent history that the DOJ said, no, we don't think you should enter into it, but, he, but who actually sued the Chicago Police Department was the attorney general from the state of Illinois. And so, so what's, what's fascinating about this is that they are currently under a consent decree but you know, you know that a federal judge oversees. They have a monitoring team in Chicago, but it is all essentially done with the ACLU and the, the state of Illinois Attorney General's office that oversees it. So, so, so the DOJ opposed it. The the judge noted it for the record, and they still did the consent decree as planned. So, what I see in Minneapolis, for instance, kind of interesting. You asked that because earlier today, about two hours ago the local station in Minneapolis called me and they interviewed me and they sounded really, really angry and desperate at the fact that the DOJ was probably not going to allow them to go into a consent decree over there. And one of the things that they said was, we do see the state, the state of, of, of Minnesota coming in to sort of provide some sort of a police reform component, which they're certainly allowed to do under state and federal law, um, because DOJ is simply likely not going to get involved at that level. But, but that's all, to be honest, that right now, I mean, I don't, I don't know what DOJ is going to do. This is such a, a high-profile case um, that, that I know that some of the people that I work with, uh, with the Justice Department, and I communicate almost daily with, are, are very eager to, <laughs> to start the process of an investigation once the FBI finishes that preliminary review. So I, I see that happening in Minnesota. Right. Well, and, and how, uh, so, so you look at this too, and you look at the, the, the challenges this creates within a community between people in the community, law enforcement, um, 
different groups, whether they be a minority in terms of demographics in that area or not, there's clearly rifts and challenges here. Uh, uh, one, one question would be, uh, it would seem to me that the consent decrees help to to be to create an inclusive process, or at least I would hope that would be the case, where uh, community leaders can come in and be be involved in, in working toward a solution, which, which really is it, it seems to be in line with our values of a of a democratic society, where we're we're trying to find consensus around the way we govern ourselves. Uh, uh, but then, are there other options? I mean, you you it really seems like there needs to be healing. There needs to be reconciliation in these situations. What, what else would be an option in doing that uh, in terms of uh, police reform or addressing the issues that lead to an incident like this, you know, whether widespread reform is needed or if it's, it's just some institutional adjustments or what it may be. I mean, most average person on the street doesn't understand the complexity of administrating uh, uh, law enforcement, uh, of, of policing. It's, it's, it's so complex. It's so regulated. It's, it's so much dependent on training and, and recording and, and just um, uh, being able to uh, uh, affirm the, the, the critical role that law enforcement has. So I, I just, I'm, I'm kind of wondering that because if the DOJ kind of backs away from that or, uh, or states lead that, and maybe that's a caught in that mix of this, well, this should be a responsibility more of the states than the federal government. I don't know, but it just seems like that this is very critical in trying to find a way forward that that uh, brings the co a community back together uh, to uh, deal with issues that can be very, very divisive. Right, and and I think you know, I mean, you, you bring up a great point in your question, right? So you've got the Chicago model, as we call it, which is the the attorney general sort of getting involved. Um, but, but then, you know, you also have the Fort Worth model, right? So, so as you know, in Fort Worth, you know, last year we lost at Tiana, you know, and, and, and this was a, that was a, certainly a shooting that should have never taken place. And so the city council came together and basically uh, the, the city manager called me and said, hey, uh, can you help us put together a team of experts that can help us review, you know, some of the patterns and practices of the police department. And although I'm not at liberty to talk about what we're doing there, but I will tell you that in a few weeks from, from now, we're going to disclose, uh, we're going to release our preliminary report. Uh, and we've been working with like the former head of the civil rights division for DOJ, Jonathan Smith, you know, Emily Gunson, who was another uh, DOJ uh, lawyer until last year. So, so we're dealing with, when we're working with people that are high caliber that they do this, uh, you know, as a matter of, of for years now doing it on behalf of the government. So, so it's an interesting model, right? That, that you have a local city that basically the city council comes together and says, you know, we, we think we need a, our own review, but we're not going to, you know, we really want experts from the outside to come in mm -hmm. and look at it and tell us what's broken, what's wrong, and, and, and let's fix it, right? So I think that's kind of an interesting perspective as far as i know eric i think this is the is the first one that of its kind in the united states but i know that we've received a lot of uh of interested people that have called us and said hey um so when you're done over there you know can you come look at, at our stuff over here right because they see it as a proactive measure as a liability reducer you know because if you've got experts that you called in to say you know help me understand what's wrong and help me fix it um, you know, the likelihood of somebody that's going to turn around and say you're hiding stuff is probably meal to none, right? So, so I think that there is a, you know, there's that model as well. So, so I think you have the federal government, you have the, the state government, and then you've got these sort of self-initiated local community uh, based, you know, let, let's get a, a team of experts to come in and review what we're doing model. And, and maybe the answer is in all three of them, right? There are, I will tell you, um, and I'm more of a state rights person than a, than a sort of a federalist in that regard. But but I will tell you that there are times uh, and there are instances and circumstances in policing where federal intervention is absolutely mm -hmm. crucial and needed. And I used to not think that way. If you would have interviewed me on that question, you know, seven years ago, I would have said, no way, there are no instances. But but I really have seen the sort of progressive decayance of that, of that sort of really, you know, that inner culture of hiding, uh, of, of institutional mm -hmm. chaos, of corruption, that, that it does require for people that have no political 
economic or otherwise affiliation to the city, to government, locally, to come in and just basically say, I'm giving you a perspective that's very much objective and it, and it does it. it's not subject to the local pressures that they may find. Well, I think that's probably where the, the, the scholarship on this comes in and helps as well, because you, you, you look at other policy areas where uh, some of the intervention at the federal level over time has been because of the lack of transparency and the inability of state and local governments uh, to co conform or follow the basic norms of law uh, that, that are in, you know, in the Constitution. We've had constitutional amendments that have addressed this. We have, have thousands of, of court cases. I mean, it's just so, so we, we are in an era where you see uh, sometimes more latitude there and trying to find the solution. And when you have a, a model like what you're saying with Fort Worth, where you get outside expertise, and, and uh, this would be, I, I guess, a, a question too that, that in, in your experience, but just seeing and training police officers, police chiefs, but seeing the level of professionalism, the level of, of skill and ability in terms of leadership. And I think that's, that's a, a, a very positive message to people in our communities that, that, that this is uh, characteristic of, of much of law enforcement today and is even probably moving in a direction where that level is going to be higher in the future. Absolutely. You know, about maybe 14 years ago, you know, I had the opportunity, which I will never forget, of meeting uh, Dr. Herman Goldstein, who was the, the guy, the academic that brought the concept of community policing you know, to the world. He's the guy that coined the phrase, right? And he was very old uh, at the time that I met him. Uh, he has passed since, but, but he and I met, and we had a great conversation in Arlington where the, the, the local chief brought him uh, to give a talk, and so I had a chance to have breakfast with him. And, and he said to me, Alex, he says, in the next 20, 30 years, there's going to be a need for more academics and more academic types uh, in policing than, than anyone recognizes. Because the, the need to understand data, the need to understand, uh, you know, the patterns of policing, uh, it, it's crucial. And, and that's where I found my passion. And I've never shared this with you before. And I guess it's good that I share it with you now in, 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 during this interview. But that's where I found my passion for what I do, um, to, to bring the academics with the practitioners to sort of embrace them, right? Because I learned from him and I learned from my experiences that, that here are these two worlds that I'm, that I'm part of, right? So I'm part of the policing world and I'm part of the academic world. And if we just kind of let our egos down and sort of talk to each other instead of at each other, we would really find that there are a lot of things that we can do together. You know, like I was telling my doctoral class this past Saturday, because as you can imagine, this is, this touches the hearts of many of our students because many of them mm -hmm. are practitioners. And so it was, it was sort of like, I, I had this whole lecture prepared and then, you know, and this happened. And so it kind of, all right, let's talk about the, the, the elephant in the room, you know, and let's talk about what we need to talk about it. And many of them were just very upset and they had very sort of, you know, pers interesting perspectives that they shared with the class. But, but I thought from my perspective, you know, it, it's, there's a, there is a significant, and I would even, I wouldn't say a need, it's urgent, it's an urgency. We, we, there's, a, there's a mandated need for our students at Tarleton State University to, to learn data, to learn how to measure things, to learn how to operational thing, operationalize things, so that when they go into the world of policing, they can help these leaders quantify their problems and address them accordingly. I cannot tell you, Eric, how many times I have been asked by a police department, I mean, maybe thousands of times without exaggerating, you know, to help them with a quantification of data sets, with an explanation of their data, with to put things in context for purposes of their city council. And I will never be appreciative enough to those professors that I had a thousand years ago in grad school that taught me how to how to research, right? Because, mm -hmm. because I see... Like what we do in the, in, in, and I show up to the classroom and I give them real life examples, right? I, and I use things that I've used, like like looking at the protest in New York, uh, you know, just yesterday, I, I was reminded of where I was last summer in Puerto Rico, where I was at the, at the, at the gubernatorial mansion, you know, watching people throw bottles of, of water and acid at police officers. Like what academic gets a chance to do that, right? Mm -hmm. and, and at the same time, write about it, you know, which is now in my book. But so, so I just think that, that for our students, you know, in the future, I, if there is anything that I want to leave your, your, your listening audience with both 
those of, those of us that are academics and, and also the students as well, is there is a substantial need to, to just be part of both worlds and to help them, right? Because we are not going to arrest our way out of these problems. We are not going to use the baton out of these problems. We, we have to use our brain and the quantification of data in order to be able to better understand and, and, and make better police officers out of our, and also educate the public, right? That's a big factor mm-hmm, too. Right. You, you, you said that in your question, I think you're spot on. Many people don't understand the complexities of policing, right? And quite frankly, people don't want to understand it. They, 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 they call 911, it's like, you know what, I heard a noise. The officer shows up, they clear the scene, and then they're like, please leave the premises right away because the value of my home is going down by the presence of your police unit. You know, so, so it's like, it's like we, we love them when we need them, but we don't like them when we don't need them, right? So, so it's sort of like it's an interesting uh, uh, component, but we also need to educate the public as well. So on that note, what are some things that uh, you would say to the, the general public in a crisis like this, where they see uh, this going on all over the country, uh, in terms of what they can do in their communities uh, to uh, address these issues, to address them in a positive and productive way for the benefit of the communities, but, but certainly for uh, the role that law enforcement, the critical role law, law enforcement has uh, in their community? Well, you know, first and foremost, I would say to them that, that, that what happened in Minneapolis is unexcusable. Uh, you know, before we even talk about ways that the community can help or get involved, uh, you know, we have, it is what it is, and, and it's unexcusable, it's illegal, it's murder, and, and I think that, that that should never happen in America again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I will say that's the exception, not the, not the norm. In law enforcement but i would say that for people out there you know it saddens my heart when i see folks destroy property and engage in violence in these protests because i think a lot of the message of the peaceful protesters is getting lost in the violence that some people uh, perpetrate but i think the rest of us that are sort of watching this from afar or from our homes i think we have a responsibility you know like jack kennedy was told by his father at one point when he said why why should it be me uh, that runs for office, and his dad said, "If not us, who? And if not now, when?" You know, I, I think that for 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 your listening audience, I would say to them, it's really time. It really is time. If there is anything that we need to do after last week, after the incident last week, is get involved. Right? Is go go to your local police department and join the Citizens Police Academy, which is a wonderful opportunity for people on a very part-time basis, like once a month. To, to, you know, spend two to three hours with your local police agency learning about their job and what they do. You know, uh, so support the understanding, the promotion of, of education in, in law enforcement as well. You know, we, we have a great program at Tarleton in, in criminal justice that, that I think people need to know what we're doing there to educate that not only the future, but the current police officers as well. But, but more than anything is to be informed, to get involved, and to be engaged, right? Because because it is the 80% of the community right now that is that silent majority that mm-hmm. needs to be involved, right? Because we're letting some people sort of define the rest of us by their political actions. And, and that's, that, that should not be the case. We should, we should be fair about this. We should be honest about the dialogue, but we need to be engaged. We've got to get out, get off our couch, get off our ritual that we do every day and simply get involved with your local police department Try to understand it. Be part of it. We have amazing people in our community, great educators, people that teach ethics, people that teach, and they, they, they can get involved in their local agencies by helping out. Um, you know, you look at Stephenville Police Department, just, just a block, few blocks away from the university, and, and we have a new chief there, which is who's great, uh, you know, great leadership with Jason King before him. But, but you know, we need to engage them and, and support them, right? and be supportive of what they do. It is the, one of the toughest jobs in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and they need to just hear from time to time that, that we understand it and that we expect a lot from them. We expect the constitution to be part of their services that they render to our community. Well, I've been joined today by Dr. Alex Del Carmen, professor of criminology and associate dean in the College of Liberal and Fine Arts and a close colleague and friend, but uh, certainly a, a, a 
internationally recognized expert in criminology uh, with his wide range of experience in engaging with police officers, police leadership, and in their training. And so I just want to thank you today for joining us. Uh, we've covered a, a lot of ground in a short period of time, but hopefully it, it, it brings to our listeners that a level of engagement they might not otherwise have in trying to understand some of these critical issues uh, during this uh, during this critical time. So thank you for joining us today. And thanks for having me. I enjoyed it you're, very much. Thank you. You're very welcome. We're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back with more on politics. We are excited to announce that KTRL 90.5 FM is now streaming online. Tune in anytime to catch your favorite shows from Tarleton Public Radio. Relax and enjoy the best of NPR news, classical, jazz, and all of our local programs like Essential Jazz, Beatles and Beyond, and more. To listen to your KTRL favorites, visit tarletonradio.com or click listen live at ktrl.fm. Hello, I'm Janice Horrock, and my radio home is KTRL 90.5 FM for news. From Feature Story News in London, I'm Ollie Barrett. Sports. Touchdown, Tarleton, Texans! Jazz and classical music. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow, and we want to thank you for joining us today, especially for that very extensive and in-depth interview with Dr. Del Carmen, especially in looking at the protest and all of the related issues connected to law enforcement and some of the challenges that we've seen over this past week. Uh, and I want to, here at the end of the show, turn to another issue that has raised some concern and presented some challenges. Uh, as you may know, I'm not one to shy away from the intersection of religion and politics because that is uh, what I teach and research. Uh, in addition to public policy and a few other areas. But this intersection is always very engaging to me, especially when you look at it in terms of the political dynamics and how uh, religious identity, religious faith and practice, especially advocacy uh, in terms of policy, uh, enters into uh, the public sphere and then uh, leads to a wide range of outcomes. And it's very unpredictable. It's very challenging. It's very unique. Uh, in this country, given the relationship that we have and the diversity uh, that we have. Uh, but many people have seen already and have seen and are in tune with the, the controversy that came uh, when President Trump earlier in the week uh, walked across from the White House uh, to uh, the St. John's Church there and hoisted a Bible uh, for what appeared to be a photo op. And part of this, as some were saying, was to connect with religious conservatives uh, in the midst of all this crisis and challenge uh, as a part of his uh, reelection plans, as a part of connecting with the constituents that have supported him. Uh, others looked at it as, as uh, a, 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 in a positive way of saying, well, here in the midst of a crisis, the, the president is trying to uh, affirm some of the principles uh, that should be guiding us in that. Um, that's a little difficult to surmise that because there wasn't much commentary that went with it. I mean, it was a matter of clearing the streets, making away the president going over uh, and taking uh, a photo op. And, and then others have been very, very negative about it. In fact, it did have an impact on a number of national religious leaders uh, who were supposed to meet with President Trump this week. And because of that and the issues it raised uh, among religious groups, uh, that meeting was canceled. And so it was really a kind of a sign here of a tension uh, between uh, religious leaders and what happened with President Trump uh, doing what he did, uh, the photo op uh, with the Bible. Uh, now, I, I'm not here uh, today and I don't have enough time really to dig into this in terms of uh, the, the facets of it, say from religious communities and, and perspectives of religious leaders. Uh, really, I looked at this, and one of the things that's always very challenging at the intersection of religion and politics is how religion is used uh, by politicians. And if you know on this show, I'm very uh, 
uh, adamant and, and very consistent in not necessarily uh, judging those actions one way or another, but looking to understand them. Why do uh, politicians, why do political leaders engage and how do they engage uh, with uh, religion? Uh, whatever it may be, the, the way in which you engage with specific religions or religious symbols, uh, and, and what is the purpose behind that? What is the motivation behind that? And I think this is a prime situation here to look at this in terms of what are the political motivations. Uh, it, it's very clear, and we can go back and look at this in terms of uh, President Trump himself, and he, he's... Um, not someone that has, has practiced religion extensively. Uh, it's been very clear that his really knowledge of the Bible or of religious faith in, in, in general uh, is, is limited. Um, and so one of the challenges here is what, what is his motivation in doing this? What, what, what does it mean in terms of a, uh, a statement to people of faith or religious communities? Or what does this mean in terms of a political opportunity? Uh, using the moment uh, in order to make connections with constituents. Uh, I tend to lean in that direction with this more than anything, just simply because of what I said first in that uh, President Trump has not shown to be a, an overtly religious person, and he's engaged with religion throughout his uh, career, and especially in his time in uh, running for public office and serving as president, um, more in terms of what it means for his presidency and what it means in terms of his constituents and the political outcomes that he's trying to achieve. Uh, I go back to the national prayer breakfasts. If you go back and you look these up online, uh, these are breakfasts that bring religious leaders across the nation together uh, to talk about critical issues. Uh, it's focused on, on prayer uh, and the, the importance of that, not only in terms of religious faith, but in terms of uh, what religious faith and religious identity brings to addressing these very challenging issues in our country and our society. And the role the president has had in those prayer breakfasts has been uh, very focused on, on, on him as a person, very focused on his political goals, his, his policy agenda, uh, and, and often delivered in a way that doesn't really necessarily connect with the prevailing ideals and values of religious communities. So if you look at that in terms of an analyst, uh, you know, not weighing, you know, tr where's truth, where's, you know, right and wrong in this, uh, the, the, the connections have been very, very challenging. And so what we see with this, with this photo op and with him, uh, uh, what he did this week, uh, is, is something very similar. In one way, he's seeing it as an opportunity to uh, support people with strong religious identity uh, to uh, to connect on that level and in that way, not not with a direct application of what, say, religious faith or identity would say about what crisis we're having right now. And this is where he received a lot of criticism for this. This is where uh, religious leaders came out and said, uh, well, there's no substance here. How, how is this dealing with issues of racism, uh, of, of, of uh, racial injustice, of uh, police brutality, of um, these uh, challenges within communities that continue to have uh, these very significant issues uh, that are rooted uh, in, in racism and, and other uh, elements that need to be addressed directly? And so this is where some of that criticism came out is that, okay, where is the leadership or the direction here? And I think this is one of the things that, that, that continues to plague uh, the president uh, and will leading up to the election. And it's not just in this area, it's in the midst of this crisis. But, but really when you move it into this, this intersection of religion and politics, uh, it can become even more divisive. And it'll be interesting to see what the, ongoing perspective is of those among very strong religious communities. I mean, early polls that have, have come out in the last few days show that he has been losing ground among religious conservatives, among evangelicals. Uh, it's certainly not at a level that would say, well, they're not going to vote for him uh, in uh, uh, November, but it is enough to say, okay, well, you add this up with all the other 
groups uh, that are either motivated to vote more, more, you know, more numbers, more people voting uh, in certain groups, uh, or the constituents that, that he had at, at the beginning of his presidency that helped him to elect. It could, it could have a difference. Uh, but what the challenge is here, and this is where, if we're looking at this from a, the political dynamics, it's for his political strategist. And so this was being viewed as, a, as an opportunity to connect, reconnect, and try to strengthen that connection with his religious base. But, but they really missed the mark with it. Uh, because one, for once, or for, for one thing, I should say, there wasn't that substance there. It was just what it was. It was a photo op. There was no uh, uh, engagement at a depth that said, okay, let's look at the elements, the values, the ideals of religious faith and identity and how those speak to these current and critical issues. That. That's where the, the, the part that's missing that, that really needs to be there. I mean, and this is, again, something I've gone back to throughout all of this presidency is that, that you surround yourself with people because you're not an expert on most issues, uh, but you surround yourself with people who can communicate, who understand the depth of these issues, and who really uh, work to, in terms of your messaging so that it connects, uh, not just in a symbolic act of doing something, uh, but it has a, a substantive uh, purpose and focus there that helps provide leadership when it's needed. And I think this was one of those opportunities. It, it could have been the same photo op, but it could have been the president delivering a very uh, strong message. And instead, the, the optics of it got in the way, the optics of, of, of uh, evacuating priests from the church, of pushing out all the protesters forcefully in order for the president to do this. Uh, all of those things overshadowed any uh, uh, attempt at gain uh, through this. Uh, and so the critical thing, I think, going forward, and we'll come back to this on some other issues in future episodes, is, the, 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 is where is the strategy in this? Where is the political strategy uh, to use this to its full effect uh, to connect, to connect with people when they are looking uh, for leadership? So I want to thank you for joining us uh, for the show today right here on 90.5 KTRL-FM. Uh, we are streaming online for the show each week at tarletonradio.com. We are also available on SoundCloud after the show to listen or download where you get your podcast. And I encourage you to join us each week here at 12 noon on Sundays for more on politics. Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from AJ Heyer and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.